Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. My name is Katie. I'm the content marketing manager with clearancejobs.com. And today I have Jonathan Tico on the line. He is an attorney representing whistleblowers at Tico and Zavari LLP. He represents whistleblowers under the False Claims Act and other similar statutes, which provide monetary rewards to whistleblowers who expose fraud and corruption. So we also have our Clearance Jobs blog, and there are always really interesting stories about whistleblowers and the retaliation that they sometimes experience. So I'm really excited to get into the conversation today. But first, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Hi, Katie. And thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to uh, the conversation. Sure. And so like I said, I, I've read some interesting stories and it it's tough to sort of see the difference in what actually is legal under the law. So I'm kind of coming into this conversation with zero knowledge. But let's start with what are some common issues that you've seen whistleblowers expose? Well, the uh, the False Claims Act, that's the, the statute that we operate under, covers essentially every government contract and every government program that hands out money. And so it's it's very broad. And I would say in the government contracting space, which, which is uh, you know where I'll focus today, some of the common issues that whistleblowers will expose through these types of cases kind of kind of break down, I would say, into three main categories. So the, the first category is fraud that relates to contractor obtaining a contract in the first place. So that could be false statements that are made in bidding documents or proposals, misrepresenting the cost of a project that, that could be underbidding the project intentionally. And then sort of collusive conduct like bid rigging or, or kickbacks that are made in connection with uh, bidding on or obtaining government contracts. And then there are types of fraud that occur after the contract is awarded, kind of in the performance of the contract. So that could simply be billing for things that aren't really happening, uh, billing for time that really isn't being spent on the project. It could be engaging in a practice that's sometimes called cross-charging, where uh, costs for one contract are allocated to a different one in order to obtain payments under uh, what are known as cost-plus government contracts. Or it could be delivering products or services that don't meet the specifications of the contract. And then the third category of fraud, I, I would call qualification fraud, where the party that obtains the contract really isn't qualified for the contract in the first instance to either get it or perform it. And sort of a good example in a place where there's a lot of activity right now relates to set-aside contracts. These are contracts that are set aside for small businesses or women-owned businesses or veteran-owned businesses. And, and often what we see in that space is companies that don't really fit those categories claim that they do in order to compete unfairly for those set-aside contracts. So those are those are some of the kind of key categories at a high level of generality, at least, that we see in the government contracting space. Sure. And, you know, all of those I, I just find so interesting. And the two that I really find interesting, I, I come from a recruiting background. And so when folks were going through and we were responding to these RFPs, 
I always found it so interesting, even if it wasn't an LPTA contract, it was all, always sort of the lowest price wins. And I, I'm just wondering, how often do you actually see those kinds of cases? Uh, you know, I, 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 that's not a large part of the False Claims Act practice, but it certainly does happen. And there certainly have been cases where that was the type of fraud that was alleged. So, you know, it, it does happen. Uh, we know that contractors do do that. And it's just a question of how frequently uh, it gets uh, gets exposed. We only know about what we know about. Sure. And yeah, how often folks are actually reporting these things. And, this, you know, again, with the set aside contracts, that's really interesting because you can call yourself, you know, a veteran owned business and then maybe, you know, under the radar, something else is going on. But so a little bit diving into the False Claims Act could you explain sort of the legal process, you know, generally for myself under that? Sure. What's what's really unique about the False Claims Act, and, and this is a law that's been on the books for many years, it, it's often referred to as Lincoln's Law because the first version of it was actually put into place during the Civil War by President Lincoln. Um, what, what makes the False Claims Act unique is that it has what's called a key TAM provision, and that's short for a long Latin phrase, but what it means is that a private citizen can bring a lawsuit in the name of the government and and in order to recover the government's damages. And then that private citizen, who we call a relator under the statute, the relator gets a share of whatever is recovered. So that's sort of the reward or the economic incentive. And that those shares are quite substantial. It can be anywhere between 15 up to 30% of what's recovered. So in a a case that recovers $10 million for the government, which, which might actually be a small case under the False Claims Act. The, uh, the relator, the whistleblower, as you might call it, they're going to get anywhere between a, a million and a half and $3 million as their reward. So these are significant rewards. And um, in addition to that, the other main difference between a False Claims Act suit and a typical civil lawsuit is that these key TAM cases that are brought under the False Claims Act, when they're filed in court, they're secret. They're filed what's called under seal. And the reason for that secrecy is to give the government an opportunity to investigate the allegations that the whistleblower is making without the defendant company necessarily knowing that they're being investigated. And so these cases are filed under seal and they're secret during the period of that investigation. And when the government's investigation is over, the government then makes uh, what's called an intervention decision. Uh, either they they intervene in the case, which means that the Department of Justice is going to come in and basically take over the case and run the case on behalf of the government, or they can decline intervention. And if they decline intervention, the, the relator or the whistleblower is permitted to pursue the case on their own with their own lawyers and, and try to obtain a recovery. So it's a it's a, a bit of an unusual statute that has different procedures than normal civil lawsuits, but it is the primary enforcement mechanism that the government uses uh, to go after fraud in government programs. Sure. Well, I mean, if someone makes an allegation, you know, they they blow the whistle on something and it has to do with a government program. And then the government launches into their investigation. And then only if they if they decide with the intervention, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering how how does someone get to the point as a whistleblower where they're protected? I mean, the the, the well, the False Claims Act also has what's called an anti-retaliation provision which means that it's unlawful for an employer to retaliate against an employee for exercising the employee's rights under the False Claims Act, which means that if the employee takes steps in order to 
uh, report fraud that the company is is committing, that the employee cannot be fired or demoted as a result of that. And if the employer does engage in that kind of retaliation, then the employee would have the right to to pursue a claim for their own personal damages, which is you know something separate from the key TAM claim, which is the the claim on behalf of the uh, the government for the government's damages. Gotcha. And so this is all under the False Claims Act. And so what about the Whistleblowers Protection Act and what does that do? Well, the Whistleblower Protections Act is primarily directed at employees of the government itself. And so what that statute provides is that if a government employee engages in whistleblowing activity, in other words, discloses fraud, waste, uh, inefficiency, or other wrongful conduct being engaged in by the government agency, then the Whistleblower Protections Act has an anti-retaliation provision that says that the government employee should not be retaliated against for having engaged in that whistleblowing activity. So it's similar to the anti-retaliation provision of the False Claims Act, which would apply to, you know, for example, a private citizen working for a government contractor. But it's a similar, a similar legal scheme. Okay, interesting. So I did want to paint you a scenario that kind of has to do with a few of these things. Uh, It's something that I had read someone was experiencing. They blew the whistle and reached out to Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency about mishandling of classified information. And the the private company that they were working for, they, they did not have security practices in place that they thought were up to snuff. And so they reported them. DCSA officials came in and, you know, they, they reviewed information and went through their whatever investigation. I I don't have all the nuts and bolts of that, but they were, they had an incident report placed on their personnel record for their security clearance. And these are their words. So, I mean, you know, it, it could be that they are, they are not telling the truth, but anyway, so they had an IR put on their security clearance record and then they were terminated because they had some timesheet errors after the fact. So what sort of role do whistleblowers have within this industry? And where, where is the line where they shouldn't be afraid from that retaliation, but they still are, you know, protecting our nation's security? Well, there are laws in place like the ones I mentioned that would make that type of retaliation unlawful. But like every law that's on the books, people violate it, right? We, uh, you know, murder's been against the law since the dawn of humanity, and yet murder still occurs, right? So you can, you can pass a law that says, thou shalt not retaliate against your employees, but that doesn't mean that every employer is going to do that, unfortunately. So that's why these laws have, you know, remedy provisions that explain what happens when the law is violated. So, you know, in the scenario you're describing, I mean, that's certainly unfortunate that it, that it happened to that employee. It may well be that that employee in that hypothetical would have claims under one of these anti-retaliation provisions back against the employer. That doesn't get the employee their job back. It gives them a a lawsuit that they can bring where they may or may not win. 
they may or may not recover money. And, you know, there, there are risks associated with being a whistleblower. I, I, I don't want to make it sound like, the, like, there, like there aren't. Actually blowing the whistle on a major fraud against a, a big company takes guts. And in my experience, the successful whistleblowers are people who, you know, have just decided to stand up against that power and have the fortitude to do that. Uh, you know, the reality is that the vast majority of people, if they're working at a big company and they see something going on that they think is wrong, their response is to just put their head down and not really do anything about it. The whistleblowers are a rare breed. And that is one of the reasons why they get these big financial rewards when they do win, because Congress and Congress, when they passed the statute, recognized that blowing the whistle was was risky and people were going to be putting their careers and their own reputations at risk, that the companies would likely turn around and attack these people, which they often do, try to make them sound like like the whistleblowers are the bad guys. Um, like you said, you know, that all of a sudden there's timesheet fraud, right? Nobody was complaining about that until they blew the whistle. And now all of a sudden there's timesheet fraud. So, you know, we all recognize that that's, that does happen and it takes real courage to, to stand up to that and to, and to try to do the right thing. And so have you had any cases or have you had any experience with whistleblowers and maybe the content of what they are exposing is classified information? Well, you know, the disclosure is made to the government. And so there are certainly situations where the information that you need to disclose in order to explain what it is you're blowing the whistle on may be uh, classified. And the Department of Justice has ways of dealing with that. I mean, they obviously have people that have the necessary clearances. They have their own procedures for dealing with cases like that. So it just means that that there is some extra care that has to be taken in handling that information to, you know, make sure that the whistleblower themselves are not are not violating any law with with their handling of the information. But there are certainly plenty of whistleblower cases, particularly in the defense and security industries, where classified information is at issue and has to be exchanged as part of the case. And, and, you know, you just have to be careful and, and handle that uh, appropriately. Sure. And I know that the government, especially now with what has been happening in current events, declassifying information has been sort of the buzzword in today's news. And just, you know, having that trust with the public and um, should everything necessarily be classified, but sort of what are the consequences if, someone, you know, quote unquote, exposes information that may not be true. You mean if they make an allegation and the allegation turns out to not be not be true? I mean, that that can certainly happen, right? You know, I, I will say in our practice, we spend a, a, a fair amount of our time kind of vetting cases. So, you know, when you when you hang a shingle as a lawyer and you say, I represent whistleblowers, you get lots of calls from people. And there are lots of people who think their employers are doing things that are wrong and illegal. And, you know, when when we sort of sort through those and vet those cases, you know, we we are what we are doing is asking the question, well, that's your story. What is your evidence? I mean, we we as the lawyers, we want to see evidence that goes beyond just the person say so. And so 
it's always important in sort of preparing these cases and making these cases to, you know, work as the lawyer with the client to really put together the evidence in support of the case. It's never enough for the client to just say, oh, I heard through the grapevine that X was happening, or I was at a meeting where somebody said blah, blah, blah. And if that's all you've got, well, no good lawyer is going to represent you in that case. We're, we're looking for cases where there is evidentiary support. Now, sometimes you have to you know, base your case on, on what we would call circumstantial evidence, which just means that there's lots and lots of smoke, but we don't have a photograph of the fire itself, right? And, but that's okay. You know, some, sometimes the circumstantial evidence can be strong enough to really support that case. And then I will say there's lots of breaks in the system to make sure that cases that are brought incorrectly don't go forward. I mean, the Department of Justice does do an independent investigation of those allegations. They don't just believe what the whistleblower says. They will do their own investigation to determine whether what the whistleblower is alleging did actually happen. And if the Department of Justice concludes that it didn't happen, uh, they will come back to us and say, hey, we did an investigation and we we couldn't, you know, we couldn't prove that what your client is saying is true. And at that point, you know, a, a good lawyer will turn to their client and say, okay, uh, we should dismiss this case and not go forward with it. And then at the end of the day, if the client really wants to go forward with a case that doesn't really have a strong evidentiary basis, they're just not going to win. I mean, those are just cases that don't win. Uh, it's very, it's very hard to win lawsuits, even when you're right. Uh, if you're, if you're wrong on the facts, you're not going to win that case. Sure. And lawyers are there to be the guidance, but so tell us a little a bit about some of the hot areas that the DOJ is currently looking into. And maybe if you could, some recent cases within the government contracting industry that would our audience would find interesting. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, they're all over the map. And, and you know, the, the really great thing about, about my practice is that th these are such interesting cases. They're, they're, so, so many of them have a real cloak and dagger aspect to them. And, and when we decide to take one of these cases, it's usually because the client is telling the truth and, and there really is something wrong there to be discovered and, and stopped. But some, you know, in the government contracting space, some of the areas that are of particular focus right now, I would say cybersecurity is probably at the top of the list. The Department of Justice just you know, within the last year or so, created a whole uh, new initiative within the department. I think they call it the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. And the, the concern here, of course, is that government contractors have a lot of information sitting on their computers that the government would prefer to keep confidential. And most government contracts these days have cybersecurity provisions in the contracts that require the contractors to take steps to protect that information. And so if a contractor is not following, you know, what they agreed to follow in the contract, or if they make representations about their cybersecurity abilities in their bid proposals that they don't really have, that is a issue of really serious concern to the government right now. You know, it goes beyond just money. This is an issue that really goes to national security and is something that they take particularly seriously. So I would say that's that's probably top of the list right now of things that uh, that gets DOJ's attention if you bring it to them. Set aside contracting is, I think, a, a very active area right now. Um, obviously, lots of money goes to set aside contracts, and 
the amount of money going to set aside contracts is going to really increase in coming years with the major surge in infrastructure contracting that we're seeing right now. A lot of infrastructure contracts are in fact set aside contracts uh, or that the money in those contracts goes to uh, what are called DBEs, disadvantaged business entities. And so fraud in that area is a, is a big focus of concern right now. And then there are other areas that are you know, just sort of always there. Um, obviously, all the things that I talked about at the top, you know, bid rigging or just, you know, just lying in proposals, that's always going to get the government's attention. Um, customs and tariff evasion is uh, uh, something that uh, is on the on the increase that we see a lot of. And then there are statutes like the Buy American Act or the Trade Agreements Act that can also be enfor- enforced through the False Claims Act if a company is providing supplies under a government contract, but lying about the country of origin of those supplies. So those are those are some of the interesting big areas that I would say are often the focus of False Claims Act litigation right now. Sure. And so you mentioned that you, your office does get a lot of phone calls, as I'm sure you do under under this area of focus. But so what kind of parameters do you have in place when someone is you know calling you about a case if if you're getting that many phone calls you obviously have to pick and choose so do you do you have a process for that oh absolutely absolutely yeah like i said this is probably the most important decision that we make as a law firm which is you know who are we going to agree to represent and so we spend really a lot of time doing what we call case vetting which is a potential client approaches us with a story. This is happening at my my business. My business is, you know, whatever it is, billing for something in violation of the contract specifications. And, you know, we then will ask the question, okay, you know, what do you, what can you show us that would prove that this is happening? And we, you know, try to look at that through the same eyes that the Department of Justice will look at it through, which is not so much what is the story, but what is the evidence? What is the story that the evidence tells? That is really the most important thing. And then often there's you know legal issues that have to be sorted out about exactly, you know, which, is the company actually violating the law? Is the company actually violating the contract? What does the contract say? What does it mean? And then there's a series of sort of strategic decisions that have to be made about where the case is going to be filed how it's going to be presented to the government and so forth. Um, but that case vetting process is really central to what we do, both both because it's important to us, but also because it's important to being able to give some advice back to the client. I mean, sometimes our advice is, hey, don't file a case. We don't think it's going to go well for you. <laughs> there could be a lot of reasons for that. It could just be you're not going to win, but it could also be, look, there's going to be collateral consequences to filing this case that you need to think really hard about before you go forward. Because like I said, being a whistleblower is not easy. It's a long road. It takes many years to get to the ends of these cases. And and you are exposing yourself to potential retaliation. So it's a serious step to take and a serious decision, both for the lawyers, but more importantly, for the client. Sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's, it's interesting to hear from a, a lawyer's perspective on the, the whole whistleblower role in this industry, and really in any industry, but specific to national security and government contracting. 
So thanks so much for joining me today, but I did want to give a space if you have any closing thoughts for our audience. Well, thanks, thanks for having me on. It's always, I always love talking about what I do. I, 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 really, uh, I really love the practice that I have and I love my clients. And I guess what I would just say is, you know, sometimes whistleblowers get a bad rap. There's sort of a perception that they're just disgruntled employees or not team players. But that, that is not the experience that I have had representing clients like this over the last, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years that I've been doing it. I mean, my, my perception is that our clients more often than not are really kind of honest patriots who are trying to do the right thing. I mean, our, our country's national security depends on the honest work of government contractors and contractors that, you know, use that trust that is given to them by the government, thus by the American people who, who use that trust really just to line their own pockets through, through fraud or, or dishonest conduct. Those people need to be stopped. And, and whistleblowers really are sometimes the first and only defense against that kind of conduct, because it's often conduct that will go completely undetected unless somebody on the inside raises their hand and says, hey, this is wrong and it needs to stop. And that's that's why we have these laws in place. That's the role that that whistleblowers play. And, and I mean, I, I can just add one other thing, which is that whistleblowers are not always just employees of the company. I mean, we have represented competing companies that have brought whistleblower claims under the False Claims Act against their competitors because they believe that their competitors are cheating. And what they want is an honest playing field in which to compete for government contracts. I mean, this is certainly true, for example, in the, the set-aside contracting space. I mean, one of the biggest settlements in this, in this area just last year was a $48.5 million settlement of a set-aside fraud case where a company was bidding on service-disabled veteran-owned small business contracts when they weren't actually a service-disabled veteran-owned small business. And the, the relator in that case, the whistleblower in that case, was a competing company who was losing out contracts because they could not compete against this big company, right, that was pretending to be a little company. And so the False Claims Act is in part about rooting out fraud and protecting individual employees, but it's also about maintaining a fair and honest competitive marketplace. And, you know, and it, and it serves both of those purposes. Um, so I think it's it's a tool that can be used in a lot of different ways. Well, thanks for sharing that. And, you know, we always think that we have a perfect system in place, but sometimes it does just take the individual person, like you said, to say that something wrong is going on here. And here at Clearance Jobs, we always encourage folks to consult with an attorney whenever they are seeking legal advice, whether that be in national security, for protection, everything that we discussed today. So Jonathan, Tico, thank you so much for joining me today. And for everyone listening who would like to learn more about whistleblower protection, other whistleblower news, you can visit news.clearancejobs.com.